Well, we're in the book of Titus. Actually, we finish up Titus tonight, so I'd invite you to open your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, and tonight we'll complete the letter, beginning with verse 12, and go through the end of the letter in verse 15. Titus chapter 3. The body of the letter has concluded with verse 11, and then in verses 12 through 15, we find Paul's concluding remarks. Sometimes these are parts of the letters of Paul that are passed over, but let's not pass over these too quickly, because there's a very important message that Paul gives us in his conclusion to this letter. Read verse 12 with me, if you would. Paul says, When I send Artemis, or Tychicus, to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. We know almost nothing about Artemis. But Tychicus was one of the brethren who accompanied Paul on his journey for the offering of the Jerusalem church that is mentioned in Acts chapter 20, verse 4. So so Tychicus is a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. It looks very much slow, like like Tychicus didn't make the whole trip, because if you'll recall, when Paul gets there, he's arrested and sent to prison in Rome. It looks like Tychicus was left perhaps at Ephesus along the way to minister to them there. Apparently it was not in God's purpose for Tychicus to continue along with Paul all the way to Jerusalem, although it's very likely that he would like to have done that, but that wasn't, that wasn't God's purpose. So Tychicus stays behind to minister where God wanted Tychicus to minister. Even though it would have been fun for Tychicus to go to Jerusalem, even though he probably set a goal to go to Jerusalem, he left and he was faithful enough to stay where it was that God wanted him. Also, perhaps Paul could have used him in Jerusalem. But in the overall providence of God, it worked out that he wasn't there because Paul's the only one arrested. And Tychicus is going to be back in Rome, ministering to Paul again by the time he is back in prison. Tychicus serves, the reason we know that, is because Tychicus served as a courier for Paul's letter to the Ephesians, which was one of the prison epistles, written between 60 and 62. While Paul was in prison the first time, Tychicus is the, the one who delivered that letter as well as the letters to Philemon and, and the Colossians. So, while Tychicus didn't get to make the journey all the way to Jerusalem, he is back ministering with the Apostle Paul, and it was God's will for him to do that. Shortly before Paul's final imprisonment and execution, Paul sends Tychicus back to Ephesus to minister there. Evidently, Paul and Tychicus are very close friends and fellow workers. And Paul refers to Tychicus as his beloved brother, So he's an important member of the ministry team. So when I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis. So Titus is to give his best effort. Uh, He's going to do his best to come to meet Paul in Nicopolis after, watch, after suitable help uh, arrives in Crete to take Titus' place. Titus isn't going to leave before these other men, one of, one of the two of these other men, get there to take his place. It's not like Paul says, listen, the churches in Crete will be fine. You come on to me and minister to me now. I need you here now. He made sure, he made sure that the churches in Crete were taken care of before he pulls Titus out. He would not leave them without suitable spiritual leadership. For you see, it takes time to develop spiritual leadership. Paul had no intention of leaving, leaving these young churches in Crete in inexperienced hands so that, so that Titus can come to minister either with him or to him. We don't know which one, it, but it doesn't matter. Paul doesn't leave Crete in the lurch. He makes sure he sends somebody there before, before he pulls his man Titus out. There was work to be done 
And Paul saw to it that Crete would be left in good hands before he removes Titus. It would be wise for Christian leaders today to consider Paul's example. Too often, churches are left in a bind when a pastor gets a better offer from another church and leaves abruptly. Usually, the pastor will be leaving a smaller church to go to a larger church, and it's not uncommon for then the smaller church to be without a pastor for months or perhaps even years after that. It it could be, but I have a hard time believing that that's God's will, to leave the smaller church in a lurch. Perhaps, but frankly, that's hard for me to buy. That may be the norm in corporate America, but it should never be the norm in God's church. By the way, it can work the other way as well, uh, and we need to be careful about that. Churches asking pastors to leave after years of faithful service because they want to grow faster or they want to compete more effectively or they don't like the way the communion service is done. All those are very famous examples, by the way. The final one was Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards' church asked him to leave. I believe it was after 20 years, was it not? Because, And I believe it was over a communion issue. Jonathan Edwards, America's finest theologian and philosopher, I could give you other names, but I don't want to violate their privacy by doing so. I know a man up in Dallas who is probably the best expositor, the finest expositor of our time, in my view. The finest expositor of our time was asked to leave his church after 15 years because the elder board didn't think they were growing fast enough. Now, that's not spiritual either. So we could use a little bit more spirituality on the pastors, and there's a very famous example here, but we won't touch that frayed nerve. But but we, we need to be careful when it comes to the pastors not caring for the flock. We also need to be careful when it comes to flocks not recognizing faithful service on the part of those who pour their life into a ministry. So it can work both ways. And these things must not be. That's not the way the local church is supposed to work. And Paul doesn't do it that way. Just because he needs Tychicus, or rather he needs Titus, who by the way was definitely one of his right hand people. Titus was a get-it-done kind of guy. Just because he needs him there in Nicopolis doesn't mean that he's going to pull him out and leave the church, churches in Crete without leadership. So Paul wants Titus to spend, uh, to spend the winter with him at Nicopolis. Now, Nicopolis is a, a Greek word. It means victory city. Of the nine cities in the ancient Roman world that were called Nicopolis, Paul almost certainly meant the Nicopolis that was on the northwest a corner of the Gulf of Corinth, founded by Octavius, or Augustus, if you prefer, in B.C. 31, after the Battle of Actium, when he defeated the forces of uh, Antony and Cleopatra in that very famous naval battle. So they would, fo- they, they would plant a city, like we plant churches. They would plant a city, and they would call it the Victory City, nearby where one of their great victories took place. And this is almost surely where Paul was. If you prefer, I don't have an overhead, but if you prefer, you can come up afterwards, and I've got a map here to show you where Nicopolis is, or at least the one that we believe where he was. If this is the place, it would have been about equidistance from where Paul probably was, probably in Philippi, when he writes this. Perhaps, we don't know for sure. And then where Titus was in Crete. So it would have been about halfway for each of them to to travel. One thing about Nicopolis, Nicopolis wasn't exactly the buckle of the Bible belt of the ancient world. You know what the buckle of the Bible belt of the United States is? Anybody have an idea? Dallas, of course. <laughs> I mean, how could it be anything but Dallas? Dallas, Fort Worth. you got Dallas Seminary in Dallas. you got Southwest Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, the largest seminary in Fort, the world in Fort Worth, the best seminary in the world in Dallas. I mean, they got them, they got them t- together, or at least one of the best. 
But this, the Nicopolis certainly wasn't that. Nicopolis was a very pagan city. And so it's interesting that Paul chooses to spend the winter there. Looks to me like Paul is going to minister all the way to the end. Now, there's no indication he ever gets a, a church planted there. We don't know what happened with that ministry. But Paul didn't punt just because he was getting a little older. Remember, Paul's, Paul's first imprisonment occurs between the years 60 and 62 A.D. And then he's freed for a time, and that's when he writes First and Second Timothy and Titus. We think he wrote Titus somewhere in the, the around 64. Now, Paul will be executed in the winter time, or, or the winter time of 67, maybe the spring of 68. So this is getting right toward the end. He's still working though, right up until the end. He doesn't retire. Now, now ministers may retire from a particular ministry, and that's good and it's legitimate and should be done. But you never really retire from ministry. At least nobody I know that's, that's worth anything ever completely retires. You're always ministering wherever you are. You may not minister in a pastoral uh, role, but you may minister in some other role. And that's exactly what Paul is doing. He is ministering in a very fertile field for evangelism, which was this town of Nicopolis. So when I sent Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. One other thing, too, in case, you, in case you're not familiar with the customs of the ancient world, you didn't typically travel in the wintertime. You certainly didn't travel by sea in the wintertime over in that region because there were storms that were on the, the Aegean and the Med. They would rock those boats all over the place, and it just wasn't good travel. It was also fairly rainy in some spots, so it wasn't good to travel by land either. So it was very common for people to, to just kind of bed down for the winter someplace, and that's exactly what Paul is doing here. In verse 13, Paul continues, diligently help Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. Apparently, Zenos and Apollos were, were leaving Paul. They were with Paul, then they're leaving Paul on a journey that would take them through Crete. That's why most New Testament authorities believe that it's Zenos and Apollos that take this letter from Paul to Titus. They're the ones that are delivering the letter. And it was Titus's responsibility then to offer them hospitality when they get there. Uh, and, and to not only to offer them hospitality there, but to help them prepare for the further journey that they had to make. All kind of speculation has gone on as to where they were going after this. Since Apollos was from Alexandria, Egypt, the, 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 uh, um, the thing that makes the top ten, anyway, would be that, that they were traveling on down to Alexandria, but there's no evidence of that at all. It's just, it's just uh, interesting speculation. But the point is, they should help these two men as they come through on their journey. Food and clothing should be supplied, as well as financial assistance if it's needed. The point here is that it's all God's money. It may be in the bank account of the churches at Crete, but God's work is taking place in more places than just the churches at Crete. So when these two servants of the Lord come through and actually are ministering to them by bringing this letter to them, they're to provide food, shelter, clothing, and transportation assistance as they go on their way. It's all God's money. Too much in Christianity today, we have it all compartmentalized, don't we? And this is this ministry's money, and this is this is church's money, and this is my money, and this is your money. It's all God's money, and it's all God's work. And the quicker we can all figure that out, the better we are. Now, granted, certainly each individual ministry has bills that they have to pay and, and expenses that have to be taken care of. But as soon as we get so compartmentalized that we, don't, that we, that we lose sight of the Great Commission, which is twofold. 
going and making disciples, giving them the gospel, and then training those disciples in local churches, it's twofold. It's not just onefold. As soon as we lose, lose track of that larger uh, a portion of the Great Commission, we're in big trouble. Like Artemis, we really don't know very much about Zenos. But Apollos, of course, is more familiar to us. You've probably heard of him before. Apollos, again, was a native of Alexandria, Egypt. He was a Jewish convert to Christianity who was an eloquent, very eloquent preacher at the time of Paul's missionary journeys. He was probably, to use terminology that is bantered about today, he was probably the Chuck Swindoll of his time. He was certainly an excellent communicator, or maybe the Charles Stanley or the Robbie Zacharias, someone like that. He was extremely eloquent. The chief biblical passage about Apollos is in Acts chapter 18. So since we have the time tonight, I'd like for you to turn, if you brought your Bible, and I hope you did, um, turn to Acts chapter 18 in verses 24 and following, and we'll see something about Apollos. Luke writes, Luke was the human author of the book of Acts. Luke writes, Now a certain Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, see I wasn't making that up, a certain Jew named, named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was, he was mighty in the Scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being only acquainted with the baptism of John. So his, his knowledge about Jesus was very limited, but what he knew, he was preaching eloquently. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he helped greatly those who had believed through grace, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. And then in verse 19, it came about that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper country, came to Ephesus and found some disciples. So where he ends up going is to the city of Corinth. And when he gets there, he vigorously proves from the Old Testament that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. Paul considers Apollos' work in Corinth so valuable that he describes him as the waterer of the seed that he had planted when he went through Corinth and founded that church. From 1 Corinthians, though, it's clear that after Apollos leaves, there are so many people that are enamored with him. You remember this from your study of 1 Corinthians? So many people are enamored with him. People start saying, listen, Apollos is the guy for me. I'm only going to listen to Apollos. And other people said, no, Paul's the only guy for me. Maybe some others were saying, Peter's the only guy for me. They were, they were setting themselves up into factions. And then other people said, I'm only going to read the red letter edition of the New Testament. I'm only going to read the words of Jesus. And Paul says, that is, you're missing the point entirely. And so Apollos was very powerful. Now, Paul never blames Apollos for that. That's not his fault. He didn't try to encourage that in any way. But certain people were saying, Apollos is my guy. I'm not listening to anybody but him. I am of Apollos. And that's not good. One, one uh, little aside, I think it's really interesting that Apollos, being the eloquent preacher that he was, was still willing to take instruction. He was very humble. Because when Priscilla and Aquila find out that he's, he's a little off on some of his theology, or at least not, not necessarily on the theology that he's teaching, but it was clear that he didn't know certain areas, they took him aside. They didn't do it publicly. 
They take him aside. They take him into their home. They pull out the scriptures. They say, listen, this is what Paul has taught us. This is what we've understood. And he soaks it up, and then he goes and teaches that. That's a humble man. That's a man that God could use in ministry, isn't it? One who was teachable. Now, in my opinion, and that's all this is, is my opinion. Please make a note of that if you're going to write this down. This is only Bruce's opinion. I believe that Apollos was the human author of the book of Hebrews. Now, that's just a guess. I'll tell you why I would guess that here in just a minute. Some people think it was Barnabas. I don't believe it was the Apostle Paul. I I think you can make a pretty strong case that it was not. But uh, Apollos is my choice. And the reason for it is has to do with linguistic reasoning. It also has a fairly old tradition. Barnabas probably has the oldest tradition as far as being the human author of the book of Hebrews. But but Apollos is from Alexandria, Egypt. I'll, I'll tell you, when, when I was in uh, University of Houston doing studies in classical Greek, my last semester there, the, the rest of the class, we had gotten started from 30-something, we were down to five or six of us. The rest of the class wanted to do Homer. And I talked to the professor there, Professor Dora Pozzi. She was an agnostic Jew. She was not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. She was fairly antagonistic to believers, and I could see why. And that is because we would have people come to come to the class with their Christian T-shirts on, on, and they would be the least prepared people in the class. It was very embarrassing to me as a Christian. I did everything I could to ace every test that she ever gave that at least gives some credibility to the intellectual ability of Christians. But I could see why she didn't think much of us. There was a a couple of students that have gone through there that did real well, kind of like uh, one by the name of Roy Ledgerwood. Some of you know him. He's a professor up at College of Biblical Studies. Fine, fine Greek uh, student. But I knew I didn't want to do Homer because Homer goes, goes way too far back. You have to learn a whole different vocabulary. It has nothing whatsoever to do with New Testament terminology, where, where classical Greek does have some. It's a, it's a harder language than Koine, so if you know classical, you can get Koine fairly easy. So she said, well, why don't we just do an independent study? So I said, well, i got a book that I'd like to, to do uh, as an independent study, and, and we did the book of Hebrews. So I thought, you know, you probably figure what I was thinking. I'd sit down and we, we would, because in, in an independent study like that, you just take the Greek text. She sits at her desk. You sit at a chair right there, and you just read and translate. That's what the class is. I mean, you sight read it, or you prepare it ahead of time, and you translate. You parse all the verbs, and you, you know, do the sentence structure and so forth. I thought, well, here, I at least gave her the gospel through the book of Hebrews. That lasted one day. One day. And she saw right through that. She said, this is way too easy. You, you cannot, I'm not going to give you credit for this. We have to do something else. So, the, so I said, well, let's try something else. And I did Philo of Alexandria. Philo, get this, of Alexandria. Remember where Apollos was from? Philo of Alexandria. If you read the book of Hebrews and you read Philo of Alexandria, in terms of its grammar and structure, they are very, very close. I mean, I discovered it independently, but that's why I went back later and read. That's why Apollos is one of the top two leading candidates to have written the book of Hebrews, because it definitely sounds like it was written by somebody for that was from that city. You know, they had a distinctive style. If you were in New York City, and you were at a, wait, at, at a restaurant, and someone came up to you and said, Hey, listen, what can I get you all to drink? Okay. Are you going to think that person's a native of New York City? Probably not. You're going to say, hey, where are you from? Are you from Georgia or from Texas? You know, and depending on the accent, you know, they'll, they'll be able to tell where you're from. And in the same way, if you're down here and they say, what kind of gets you guys to drink? You know, you're going to know you, you weren't born in, in Beaumont, were you? No. Well, it's, this, it's kind of the same way with ancient literature as well. You can read it and you can see from the way that they string their, their uh, grammar together uh, probably where the person's from. So anyway, that's my, that's my um, sales pitch on... Uh, Apollos, but the bottom line is it doesn't matter. The only thing that does matter, if you've ever had anybody that tells you, I know for sure who wrote the book of Hebrews, just run away. I mean, just, just disregard the conversation because we don't know. 
for sure. So in the first verse, we see Ar- Artemis and Tychicus are coming. Titus is not going to leave until the churches in, in those places are in good hands. In the second verse, diligently help Zenos the lawyer. No one, one thing about him being a lawyer. We don't know if he was a lawyer in the sense of, of the legal profession today. That's a possibility. This is not a Hebrew name. Or we don't know if perhaps this was a Hebrew convert to Christianity who was an expert in the Mosaic Law. Again, uh, trivia, we don't know for sure, but those are the two possibilities. Diligently help Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. The key point in this verse is it's all God's money. And you have a responsibility. We all have a responsibility to uh, help those who are working for God. Also, remember, Paul didn't minister alone. Are you starting to see that now as we finish some of these New Testament epistles? He doesn't minister alone. He dies alone. For all we know, he was executed by himself. He certainly suffered alone. He was thrown in prison alone, but he doesn't minister alone. There were many fine and capable believers who ministered right alongside with him, and I'm so glad he gives us some of their names so that we would understand that. Uh, Sometimes we get the wrong idea about people like Paul and, and John and Peter. And think that they would just would travel from place to place all by themselves. They didn't do that. They had a, a team that went with them. And everybody on the team had a function. Everybody, every single person on the team had something to do. Nobody just went along for the ride. And so we see some of the people that Paul uh, mentions here. Then in verse 14. And let our people, these are the believers in Crete, let our people also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs that they may not be unfruitful. He's already talked about good deeds in this epistle already, previously. In fact, in the introduction to the epistle, I know it's a couple months ago, but in the introduction, in the introduction to the principle, that's how we started it. Remember, by talking about this four-letter word that the Christians want to avoid at all costs in its work. There is, there is something to be said for work in Christianity, not to get you to be a Christian, but after you are saved and Paul makes sure, through Titus, that the, the Christians understand that that's part of the package. I don't think he's just repeating that here. This has a more specific context. The context is within the conclusion of the epistle. The good deeds that are being spoken of here are showing hospitality, helping out with food, shelter, clothing, and financial assistance, those who are doing God's work. Now look at it again. Let our people, these are the people in Crete, also learn to engage in good deeds. This is not something that's an innate behavior for many people. They have to be taught. They have to be taught that it's God's money. It doesn't belong to you. It doesn't belong to this particular church, that particular ministry, or that particular individual. It's all God's money. It's all God's work. People have to be taught that. That's why he says they have to learn it. Manthano, the the Greek term for that. Let our people also learn to engage in good deeds. We spoke about it a little bit last week. There's two different words for good in the Greek language. One is agathos. That's the Second Corinthians 5 word. You know, that, that we're going to all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We'll be paid back for the deeds done in the flesh, whether they're good or bad. The word for good there is agathos. It's good of intrinsic value, good of lasting value. The word for bad there is phallos or worthless. Remember that from last week? This is the same Greek word that we found, though, earlier in this epistle. This is not agathos. This is the Greek word kalos, K-A-L-O-S, which is usually translated noble or beautiful. It's also translated good. 
But in our study last week, we made a, we made a point of, of saying from verse 8, when Paul says, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed in God may be careful to engage in good deeds. The word there is kalos. It's not agathos. And some people make, well, this must, must be a weaker word than agathos. Not necessarily. When he was speaking in verse 8, he's speaking to the entire congregation about all the deeds that they performed, that they would be beautiful. That when someone sees the work that a Christian is performing, it would be noble. It would be beautiful. It would be lovely. When people see you, I hope they see Christ, and I hope when they see you, they see Christ through you, they see someone who's lovely, someone that's beautiful. I'm not talking about physical appearance now. I'm talking about in the way that they live their life. And now here again, we have that same word come up. And let our people also learn to engage in kalos deeds, K-A-L-O-S, beautiful deeds, noble deeds. It's a beautiful thing in God's eyes. It's a very beautiful thing in God's eyes for you to help someone that's doing his work. Just like it's a beautiful thing in your eyes if someone stops and helps someone that you love. Don't you feel like you almost owe them a debt, a debt of gratitude or a debt of something? When someone helps your son, your daughter, your husband, your, your wife, your mother, your father, of course you do. And God feels the same way. So Titus must help these men along on their journey. But he shouldn't have to do it alone. It should be a burden of the entirety of the churches in Crete. Titus is to encourage the believers all around the island to help. And this is not only for the benefit of Zenos and Apollos. The benefit would also be theirs. Now that's the key thing from verse 14. You see, there's, there are messages in these last few verses. That's why we didn't want to race through them. It's in their benefit to perform lovely deeds and to help those who are doing God's work. So that they may not be unfruitful. As Paul made clear in the letter to the Philippians, he says, not that I seek, when he's thanking the Philippians for the gifts that they've given him, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit, Paul says, which increases to your account. Ever thought about that? When you do God's work, when you provide help, food, shelter, clothing, financial assistance to those who are doing God's work, it's not just for the person that you're helping. There is a profit that accrues to your account every time that's done. Now watch, everybody can't go to Ukraine. Everybody can't go to Africa. Maybe everybody's not gifted in that way. But every one of us can either pray or help in some other way for, the, for those that can. I hope that makes sense. The, the Christian believers should learn to apply themselves to good or to noble deeds. I want you to turn another place with me. Don't do this often, but, but tonight I'd like for you to turn to Matthew chapter 25, where this same principle is outlined by our Lord himself. Matthew chapter 25, in the last portion of the Olivet Discourse, beginning in verse 34. If you don't have your Bibles, just, just listen along. But our Lord says, breaking into the middle of this discourse, forgive me for having to do that, but because of time we need to, we need to do so. He says, Then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now, this is, these are the verses I want you to listen carefully to. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. This is Jesus talking now. Don't miss this. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, 
and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous, the one who's standing before Jesus, the righteous person will say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? I don't remember that, Lord. In fact, people who are reading this could say, I wasn't there when he was hungry. I would have been happy to provide Jesus Christ with a drink. I would have been happy to provide him clothing if I saw him naked. I would have been happy to give him a room in my home if Jesus was traveling and had no place to stay. Wouldn't you give him a room in your home? If he needed five bucks for gas to get on down the road to do his station, wouldn't you give him the five bucks? You bet you would. And if you didn't have it, you'd go to your next-door neighbor and borrow it, or you'd dig it up in the backyard, wherever you had it saved, and you would give it to him. Wouldn't you? Every single one of us would amen that if it was Jesus Christ. So what in the world is Jesus Christ talking about here? He said, I never did that to you. I never, I never met you personally. At least not while we were on earth. He said, oh yeah, you did. Now, I'm not talking about these silly movies, and I'm sorry, but I think they're silly. Any movie that talks about Jesus being a stranger and walking the earth today and being some old bum on the side of the highway, and that is ridiculous. That is not scriptural, and I don't have a whole lot of use for those. I'm sorry if you do. Forgive me. That's just, I just had to get that off my chest. This is a good enough place to do it. That's not the way he works. He will come back for his church with the voice of the archangel, with the, the trumpet of God, with a shout. It's, it's all been planned out. You don't have to worry about seeing a bum on the street, and maybe it's Jesus. That's bad theology. Bad, bad, bad theology. Terrible theology. <laughs> Got to put it any stronger. We're going to know when he comes. You'll all hear it. Believe me. Then when he comes back the second time, it'll be the great and terrible judgment of the day of the Lord. He's not coming back as a hobo. He wasn't a hobo the first time, by the way, either. He didn't have a place to lay his head, but he was no hobo. Anyway, back to this. When, and, and when did you see a stranger and invite? Uh, when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? Now, now you all know the answer. You've all read this before. And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did this to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. If you really would give Jesus a cup of water, and you would, then don't withhold it from his servants. Don't withhold it from those who are doing his work. That's the point here. You see, there is a lot in this conclusion, isn't there? It is very rich. Finally, verse 15 is an exchange of greetings. All who are with me greet you. All of his ministry has seen this left behind. Everybody says hello. And that's kind of special. People who have ministered together before. Moses Omubiku's representative, or right-hand person, Debbie Hager, was here this last week. One of the things I said when she left, I said, make sure you tell all the guys from Africa hello for me. You know, we went there right down the list. There were fond memories, and, and even though they're all scattered throughout the world, that was really special for me to mention every single one of them. Tell them Bruce said hello. And then the other, she'll send greetings back, and those are special times. But then I, lo- I love what he says, greet those who love us in the faith. Greet those who love us. Finally, grace be with you all. It's said that the Apostle Paul was the Apostle of grace. John was the Apostle of love. Actually, John understood grace too, and Paul understood love. But Paul, but Paul probably understood grace better than anybody of his day. 
People often ask who the greatest believer of the ancient world was or of all time. I have no idea, and neither do you. None of us do. God only knows that. But I know the Apostle Paul was extremely faithful. And I know that he, like David in the Old Testament, and Peter and Paul, Peter and Paul both in the New Testament, understood what grace was. Grace is unmerited favor. Grace is, grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace is all that God is free to do for you on the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Grace be with you all. This word grace is the word kairos. A, a typical Greek greeting would be the word kairē. If I was to, if I, we were in the ancient world in ancient Athens and we met each other on the street, I might come up to you and say kairē opilo. The kairē part is kind of the hello or the greeting. Well, what Paul does is he takes a Greek greeting and and makes it Christian just by changing just a little bit. And so instead of the word kairē, he would have said kairos. You see how they sound very similar? Kairé, kairos. But they mean something entirely different. Kairos means grace. And so ends the epistle. By way of application, then, in summary, this epistle teaches us several things that we've studied over the last several weeks. First thing that Paul teaches us in this epistle is that the church will be powerful in the world to the extent and only to the extent that it reveals God's truth. The church will be powerful in the world to the extent and only to the extent that it reveals God's truth. Its influence does not lie in methods, but in the timeless truth of the Word of God. I wish the church would realize that today. Because unfortunately, those who are in a position to evaluate the church, evaluate it as an inch deep and a mile wide. We've got a lot of people coming to Christ. But we don't have a lot of people that are truly serious about learning God's Word. And that's why it's only an inch deep. In fact, in some churches, that is, it's, it's by their very ministry philosophy, not a major issue. Now, that sounds, some of you in here are thinking I'm making that up. If you think that, then, then just start researching it for yourself. It's there. You've all grown up in traditions where, where the teaching of the Word of God was central to worship. In most places now, it's not. And Titus would be a good book for some folks to study. I don't so much blame the, the sheep in those churches as much as I blame the, the leadership boards, the elder boards, the deacon boards, because those are the ones that are prescribing to the pastors what they can do and what they can't do in many, different, in many cases. And they're telling them, listen, we want to grow. If we want to grow, it's more important for us to get them in. Then we'll figure out what we're going to do with them later, but let's get them in. And that's one of the reasons why. People who have been faithful for 20, 30, 32, 33 years are shoved out the door. Faithful expositors of the word because they want to grow more and they want to compete with another institution. God will not bless that. So, the church will be powerful in the world to the extent that it reveals God's truth and only to that extent. God's truth is timeless. Second, the book of Titus teaches that church leaders must be people who are under the rule of God's truth. You can't be outside of it and teaching it. There can't be any of this, do as I say, but don't do as I do. Don't, don't, you have to be able to do as they do. Paul says, imitate me because I'm imitating Christ. So all this business, listen, just, just do what I tell you to do. Don't look at my life. That is not a scriptural concept. We should not select leaders in churches because of their business experience, because of their social influence, or because of their wealth. 
It is the spiritual life of a man, mastered by the truth of God, that qualifies him for church leadership. And Paul makes this clear in the qualifications that he gives in the very first chapter of the book of Titus. Third, this epistle teaches us that the power of an overseer is God's truth, not that of the office per se. You can hold the office and be powerless without the word of God. No real power comes because a person fills any particular office, at least not in real Christianity. In some places in the world it does. In some places you put on a robe, get a silly-looking hat, grow your beard down to right about here, and you've got authority. But not in the real church. I've been in places like that. One of them was in, in Jim Dumas's new adopted hometown of Kiev. I went up to a place called the Lavra, which is a beautiful, beautiful monastery on top of the hill. And I watched, and almost it just stunned me, how these guys would walk around in their gray robes, in a real sanctified way, walking like this. And everybody was supposed to come back. <coughs> the priest is coming by. No, it's not the gray robe that gives anybody any authority in that office. It's not the silly looking hat. It's the word of God. And Paul makes that clear here. Real power comes as a result of a person's example and his words. And finally, Titus teaches that the measure of the success of a church is the extent to which the church members fulfill their function in the world. Another thing the Bible knows nothing of, the scriptures know nothing of, is learning and sitting on our keisters and doing nothing with it. Or keeping all the work with inside these four walls. The power of a church, the success of a church, is the extent to which the church members fulfill their function in the world. The measure of success is not the number of people attending services. That's how the world gauges success. That's not how God gauges it. It is the number and effectiveness of the people proclaiming God's truth in the world by their lives and by their verbal witness. So finally, the message statement of the book of Titus. The church then must be orderly so that it can fulfill its function, namely to proclaim God's truth in the world. When we meet again, we will begin the study of the third of the pastoral epistles, at least the third one that was written, which will be Second Timothy.